Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we take an in-depth look at fiction and non-fiction books with a folklore focus, and meet their authors. In today's episode, book reviewer Hilary Wilson speaks with the eminent Professor Frank Gonzalez Crucy about his book The Body Fantastic, published recently by MIT Press. Professor Gonzalez Crucy is Emeritus Professor in Pathology at Northwestern University and is the author of 22 books in both English and Spanish. The Body Fantastic looks at the human body through the lens of dreams, myths, legends and anecdotes of the bizarre, exploring the close connection of the fictitious and the fabulous to our conception of the body. Frank chronicles, amongst other curious cases, the man who ate everything, including boiled hedgehogs and mice on toast, the therapeutic powers of saliva, hair that burst into flames, and an amphibious man who lived underwater. Drawing on clinical records, popular law and art, history and literature, he considers the body in both real and imaginary dimensions. Myths and stories, Professor Gonzalez Crucy reminds us, are the symbolic expression of our aspirations and emotions. These fantastic tales of bodies come from the deepest regions of the human psyche. Ancient Greeks, for example, believed that the uterus wandered around inside a woman's body, an animal within an animal. If a woman sniffed an unpleasant odour, the uterus would retreat. Organised digestive excess began with the eating and drinking contests of antiquity and continues through the hot dog eating competitions of today. And the libido pedalic association, connecting male sexuality and the foot, insinuated itself into mainstream medicine in the 16th century. Meanwhile, the feet of women in some cultures were scrupulously kept from view. Professor Gonzalez Crucy shows that the many imaginary representations of the body are very much a part of our corporeality. Hi, I am here with Dr. Gonzalez Crucy to discuss his book, The Body Fantastic. You know, welcome to the podcast. We're very okay. excited to have you here. And I wanted to begin um, to ask, so what drew you to this particular topic? Um, what was the inspiration behind writing the book? Okay. Uh, well, um, as I was saying before we started recording, uh, I, uh, I, ever since my younger years, I had this uh, inclination towards the humanities, towards literature and philosophy. Uh, various circumstances uh, made me go to, to medicine, which in, in which in addition I was very interested because the, you know, the, the function of the body in health and disease is and has always been a fascinating topic. Uh, so uh, I uh, became a, a pathologist. Later, I, I specialized in uh, pediatric pathology. And one of the duties of the pathologies used to be very common, is being so less and less now for, for various reasons, uh, was the performance of autopsies. Okay. Now, uh, 
to do an autopsy to cut out a human being to examine the internal structures is a is a very uh, powerful moving experience uh, however much one can get used to it because after all i think the human being is not is not made to live under perpetual high tension so soon or later even the most uh, dire experiences become one becomes accustomed to them but still uh, given my background in the humanities and this experience uh, i had some uh, uh, reasons to 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 reflect to to, uh, to write down the thoughts that came from from this uh, from this daily spectacle and i think this attracted some attention or here is somebody who does uh, autopsies in the morning and writes essays in the afternoon <laughs> or in the evening and so i i i i, I did uh, have some favorable reception from the public on the first uh, the first book of essays that i published and that is always very stimulating when when the wheel of, turn, of fortune is turning upwards it's a it's a it's a tremendous stimulus to continue doing what you were doing because that means that you were doing it well and that's how i decided to write essays connected with the with the structure of the of the body with biomedical subjects but uh, trying to to make like a melding or a or a or a, a weave, interweaving between literature uh, art and and medicine sometimes it comes out very well and sometimes it doesn't but that's what i always intend to do uh, not insist too much on the medical aspects which in the first place there are already many excellent medical divulgators uh, and besides it, uh, the, the public sometimes tends to be bored if one gets to be too technical, you know, the, the general public. No? Uh, so I, I tried uh, to, do, to do this uh, mixture. Uh, and, uh, and I think, I think there should be more people trying to do it because you might remember, many people might remember an essay that was written, oh, I think 70 years ago or more by a journalist writer who was C.P. Snow. It was called The Two Cultures. People still remember that they say it caused some uh, flurry in academic circles. Mm-hmm. Saying that the, the, the two rails are, you know, science and technology and art and literature is like the two rails of a, of a, of a train. They, they go together, but they never mix. They go in the same direction, always parallel, but never really coming across. And he put some striking examples. Uh, you know, many doctors and biomedical scientists never read anything having to do with literature. They scarcely know who Shakespeare was. And some of them is justified because research is so absorbing, you know, that probably they have little time, but many do it because it's the culture that does not allow them to go in that direction. And on the other hand, uh, persons in literature who have not this foggiest notion about basic uh, biomedical or biological concepts. You know, they, they don't know uh, uh, how a DNA is constructed, what it does. So it's to them, it's, it's alien. So I think that what I try to do is to put those 
traverses across the two rails to try to join the two. And as I say, when it, um, when it comes out successfully, it's a matter of great satisfaction for me. Uh, and w when it doesn't, well, you have to try again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, if I may, uh, on this particular book, The Body Fantastic, uh, in addition to, to these uh, tendencies, which I had for many years, uh, I was inspired in particular by an essay from a, a poet, a French poet, uh, Paul Valéry, who from the part of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Paul Valéry is a, is a rare breed because clearly he's a poet and philosopher and, and a very good poet at that. He has already a name in, in uh, French and, and world literature. But at the same time, he had studies in, in mathematics and engineering. I don't know. People say that went to his house that they saw next to his uh, bed in the little table, uh, books with uh, notebooks with very uh, accurate precision drawings. And, and he was conversant in the latest uh, uh, theories of uh, physics. Uh, he could discourse on uh, Maxwell, Maxwell and electromagnetism, and at the same time into, into the, the poets of, of France. No? So he's, he's really quite a rare read. And he wrote an essay uh, called Simple Reflections on the Body. That's the name of the essay in French. And um, uh, Reflexion simple sur le corps in French. And uh, he uh, said that uh, we have more than one body. No? Uh, one body is the body we inhabit, that we call our body, uh, uh, although it's not clear that it belongs to us or we belong to it, but anyway, that's our body. And this body, we really cannot see. Uh, well, we see part of it all the time. We see our arms, our hands, our legs, but we, don't, we never see the back unless we use artificial constructions of mirrors to see our back. And we never see it spontaneously. Uh, you know, every time we go to see how we look, we are already pausing. No, not like the body normally is, but already uh, pausing the way we would like to look at it. That's body number one. Then there's a body number two, which is the body that others see of us. No? And it doesn't always coincide with the first body because we have an idea of our body, but the other people have a different idea on the body. That's body number two. He says, we are known by that, by that second body. Sometimes this second body is loved, sometimes the second body is hated, but anyway, that's another body. Then there's a third body, which is the interior body made of, uh, of uh, viscera, you know, tissues, arteries, nerves. And that body, uh, we say, we'll never meddle with it and we might as well, because no matter what we do, we cannot change the way it works. No? So, the, and then he suggested that there may be a fourth body, uh, but this was more like a philosophical concept, poetical philosophical conception of Paul Valéry, and he compared it to when you have a glass and you make a whirlwind in the liquid of the glass. The whirlwind has is has an existence, you can see it, is there a whirlwind? 
which is different from the rest of the water in which it is connected, but at the same at the same time is part of it. No? And so he says that there may be a, a fourth body, which we don't know, which you know made of, of things that we cannot even perceive. Physicists do, you know. Physicists tell you that the, the matter, which we see and we can touch and we can feel, is actually constituted by infinitesimally small particles which are going at great speed, but we don't see that. That's a, something that the physicists can tell and is beyond our comprehension most of the mo most of the time. You know? So is it, uh, that that essay on the four bodies or simple reflections of the body by Paul Valéry inspired me to write this book because I think, yes, there is a fourth body and the way I, I understood or the way I think is that this is a body which is made of tales, of legends, myths about the body, which are constantly surrounding us, even though we don't see, we don't realize. But a lot of people even unconsciously refer to that fourth body. So it's something that accompanies us. We don't see it, but it's an integral part of us. How about our hopes? How about our dreams? Our dreams are, are part of us because no, nobody, nobody else has the same dreams as we do. So they are an integral part of our, our personhood or our individuality. You know? and, and so I thought, well, there is a fourth body uh, made of dreams, made of myths, made of legends of dreams and aspirations, fears that we have, I'm going to write this kind of book, starting with the body, the material body, and then trying to interweave it with these dreams, legends, uh, myths. Uh, and and that's, how, that's how I came to, to write the, the, the body fantastic. It's a body made of fantasy. So I hope I have answered. <laughs> You certainly did. It was one of the most fascinating books I've read. It really, I, I had to pause while I was reading it at multiple points because you drew from such a wide variety of sources uh, for what you wrote. There were, you know, medical, you know, there were mentions of medical papers, doctors and the like, but there was also some really deep history in it, some really fascinating folklore. There, you know, was literature being referenced in it and there were things that you mentioned that I had never even thought about, even as you know, being a lifelong fan of folklore. And I was you know, curious just how you were able to synthesize so many different sources you know, while you were writing it. Well, I, I, uh, I think, like I said, this, this uh, is part of my background and my uh, fondness for for literature and the human, the humanities in general, because there are many pathologists. A friend of mine told me, perhaps uh, flatteringly, because of my, our friendship, he says, "You you can write essays because you have a, a strong humanistic uh, uh, culture." He says, a, a lot of us, he said, he was a, a colleague, a pathologist. You know, we go, we do the autopsies, and we don't think beyond that. Okay, we have established the cause of death, the technical part, and we don't think what's beyond that. You know? Uh, it, it was, like I said, uh, my background that uh, uh, oriented me towards say, well, the, the thing does not stop here. I have uh, developed this idea in one of my previous, actually the first book I wrote, which is called 
Notes of an Anatomist, which was very well received by the critic, but that was many years ago. I, I am now, to put it in plain language, I am now an old man. But, uh, but uh, it was 35 years ago that the, the Notes of an Anatomist was published, between 35 and 40 years ago. And I developed this idea. You, we, the pathologist is supposed to establish the cause of death. You know? Like the, this man uh, uh, died because of cirrhosis of the liver you know, due to alcoholism. Yeah, that's it. You know? But be, be, behind that is the fact that he had all kinds of problems that led him to alcoholism. And behind that, that, that those psychological problems that he has are the social situations that enveloped him and and his family and his inheritance and the milieu in which he lived all, all that cannot be forgotten it was really although more remote not not immediate but intermediate part of his death so that's also the cause of death you know? and so i said if we if, if anybody ever had the idea of writing the cause of death he would he would have one link of the chain leading to another link of the chain to another link of the chain to another link and so his his final uh, pathology report would look more like the old novels of the 17th century, <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like Cervantes, who, who starts telling a story and a person appears that narrates another story. And so there's a story within a story, you know, like that. So, so that, that is, uh, as I say, that is which I, I, I see my, my, uh, my thing, my thing to do. To, to try to, to correlate it in, in the measure that it is possible and to try to do in, a, in an um, interesting way for the public, uh, sometimes entertaining. Uh, if I may explain a little bit, that's one problem that I had, that I have had in, in the publishing. Well, many, many problems. First of all, English was not my first language. No, I was born and raised in Latin America, so I, uh, my first language is Spanish. Then I learned other languages. I learned French before I learned uh, English. You know? uh, uh, so sometimes I struggle with the, with the um, proper expressions, you know? especially the vernacular. I was telling my wife the other day that maybe that's one reason I don't, I, I don't write much fiction because I don't really know the proper tone of how people speak. You know? Although now I, my excuse is now too weak because I have lived in North America, too many years already, 50 years. I should know by now, no? But my my world is limited. I am I'm in the, in the books, so uh, my life is in the books. I see some people will tell me get a life, but, but me, I prefer books. <laughs> Who needs a life when you have a library? <laughs> I do now. I do have a library, and um, uh, uh, this is this is what I do. This is how I. Uh, I try to do, and and that w one reason of, of the difficulty in publishing for me, you know, has been that my books straddle between between literature and uh, academic books. You know, uh, an editor w told me one time, he said, there are people that as soon as they see a book that has a lot of uh, footnotes, you know, at the end of the page, a lot of footnotes, a lot of references, they immediately break down in sobs. Oh, <laughs> uh, so I was very rewarded by what you said in the criticism of my book, The Body Fantastic. 
that it may have the appearance of an academic book, but you found it something understandable, something that you could enjoy, that you could understand that it was not, not an academic book, but you know, in the publishing business, sometimes they see my book and say, well, this is an academic book. They say, why don't you try a university press? So naively, I go to the academic press and they say, this is not an academic book. I mean, you're using anecdotes. Sometimes you use jokes. I mean, I use humor when the, when the need is there to make the body, the body of the work interesting. I, I, don't, I don't mind using humor if it's called for and all that. So I am too academic for the trade uh, genre of publishing, and I am too uh, vulgarizing for the academic, for the academic world. But, but uh, nevertheless, you know, uh, there are some people who appreciate this. Uh, this, and, and so I will, as long as I have a reception, I, I will, I will continue doing it. So that is the genesis of the of the of the book we are talking about, the, the body fantastic. I don't know. Yeah, I can't imagine people not enjoying it. it like, it, I can understand calling it academic, but it didn't read like a lot of the academic books that I've read. You know, there is a very extensive bibliography, but it's a fantastic bibliography that you could use as a reading list if you wanted yeah. to dig in deeper. It, I, I can understand the trouble that, you know, the publishers were having, but it's a really fantastic, really accessible book. I think that anybody who is remotely curious about the topics would really like to dig in. Like one of the, um, in the first chapter of it, you were focusing on the reproductive system. Yes. And uh, folklore that was associated with it. And I knew a decent amount about that going in, you know, just from being interested in this topic in general. But for some reason, I had never made the connection between your early belief being that the uterus was alive, you know, a sentient animal within the human being, and later connecting it to the story of the stork bringing people babies. <laughs> I never quite made that connection. The, 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 first, uh, the first chapter of the book, yes, is on the, on the reproductive system, and specifically on the uterus, on the uterus. And the uterus uh, is a topic that really... I, I could write a, and, and, and books have been written about, about it, no? and not only from the medical uh, point of view, which right, right now it's a, it's a hot topic right now, uh, but also from the literary uh, point of view. Uh, I examine, uh, as, as I say, I try to do my books very extensively researched. So I go into this old uh, idea which sounds like extravagant, sounds, sounds crazy to put it in one word, that the ancients had, especially the ancient Greeks, who thought that the uterus could move inside the body and that it was the cause of a lot of uh, 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 strange symptomatology. So it would move from its place, which is way down. In fact, I believe that the etymology of the, of the, of the books in Greek, hysteron, has something to do with the last because he thought they thought that it was the last uh, viscous was way back behind everything and way back in the in the lowermost point of the pelvis anyway they thought that it could uh, roam inside uh, and when it would go all the way up to the right heart it would constrict the the liver 
and would cause sim biliary symptomatology, or it could go to the other side and push the diaphragm and cause palpitations in the heart and so on. Some people thought that it could reach all the way to the neck and give uh, rise to the symptom of uh, asphyxiation, which as a matter of fact, is one of the commonest symptoms in the complex of symptoms that used to be called hysteria. You know, a, mainly, you know, a, a, a feminine, uh, you know, a woman's uh, disease primarily, but not exclusively. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, from that, they derived uh, therapeutic measures, which seem even more extravagant than this idea, because th that implied that the uterus, in addition to have motility, also had some sensibility. In other words, they said, uh, if, the, if the uterus is coming too high to the, to the neck, no, just have the patient smell some repugnant odors. For example, burnt corn, uh, horn material, and the, the uterus will, will feel that repugnant odor and will quickly recede and go, go back down. On the other hand, uh, if you want to attract him to that uh, lower part, have the patient sit on a, on a basin that contains frag fragrances, perfumes, agreeable odors, and the uterus will be attracted and will go down. Now, all this seems, seems incredible to us, but it was a standard uh, uh, therapeutic thought in ancient Greece. Uh, it is in the... In, in the textbooks of some of the most reputed uh, physicians of antiquity. Uh, um, and, and it went down, uh, down the ages for a long time. I was reading the other day a book written in the 17th century by Denise, uh, who was a French uh, surgeon, was the French surgeon of uh, Henry IV of France. So it was already way past uh, uh, 16, 17, more 20 centuries later, no? and yet he still talks about the ligaments. The, you see, by, by the time that Denise was writing, it, it was obvious that, uh, that there are ligaments that tie the uterus to the surrounding structures of the pelvis, including to the pelvic bones, mm -hmm. you know, the broad ligament and the round ligament, the, the, the connective tissue that firmly anchors the, the the uterus, so it's impossible for it to disconnect and go roaming around. Nevertheless, this uh, surgeon, uh, Denise, uh, was saying that those uh, uh, ligaments are necessary to stop the the um, the uterus from from going away. In other words, like the bridle of a of a horse to to hold it to hold it in place. And he accepted that possibility that even though they anchor the, the, the uterus, nevertheless, the anchors can still uh, stretch the ligaments a little bit. So we accept that, that there could be some displacement, maybe not as high as they thought before, but some displacement able to cause some symptomatology. And this was after the, the landmark of anatomy had already been published, which is the, the, the book by Vesalius, the Fabrica, the Fabrica, Fabrica Corporis or Fabrica Humani Corporis, the book by Vesalius, Andrea Vesalius, who really had done away with all the previous nonsense that came from, from the ancients, uh, from Galen and so on. And he really 
with excellent um, uh, illustrations in the book. Some people say that Titian himself had a hand at uh, drawing those illustrations. He drew very accurate things. And 60 years later, after Vesalius had published his landmark book, we still have Denise talking about everybody knows that the uterus has a tendency to be displaced here and there. You know, so it is hard to to eradicate uh, the 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 wild ideas, including the, the widest superstitions, really. You know, but the, but the, the motility of the uterus is only one of the many things uh, that surround the uterus. The uterus is, as I say in the book, in my book, uh, the body fantastic. I said, it's the mother of all organs, really. <laughs> it, it is uh, uh, our first domicile, right? We all, we all come from, from this. We all, at one time, we all were germs in, inside the womb of our mother. Uh, that's uh, so that um, this has given rise to a lot of strange ideas of different thinkers. Uh, at one time, when... Uh, uh, Christianity was very restrictive. You had uh, the preachers saying that, that um, the uterus is placed in the pelvis and in front of it is the urinary, urinary bladder. And right behind it is the rectum. So the uterus is in an enclave, which is uh, between the urine and the feces, the excrement. You know? So that's, that shows that uh, they use that as a moralistic uh, topos, no? saying that no matter how um, exalted a person might be, how great a king and how flattered by everyone it is, nevertheless, his beginning were always lowly, were always humble. You know, there, there was a, it, it was a speech, I remember there's a, a speech by Bossuet, no? one of the great uh, orators and, uh, you know, Christian uh, preachers who pronounced this in front of, I don't know, Louis XIV or whatever, no? uh, <laughs> to remind them, to remind them that how arrogant they were and how unjustified it is considering that they are like the rest of us, no? of very humble origins. Nobody thinks that the, the situation of the uterus now has any moralistic, uh, moralistic uh, implications. No? But nevertheless, I think it's an interesting idea. And it's worth worth remembering, because if it is not exactly the topography of the uterus, there are many other things in our being, which should remind us that we are all mortal, and, and we are all weak. Uh, you know, sometimes you you see the great uh, potentates of Earth uh, making the glass like they were high and mighty, and I think, if I may say, that's that's uh, one lesson that cannot be avoided. It, it doesn't matter how much uh, uh, humanistic background one has. To do, to do autopsies is a constant reminder of, our, of the finitude of our life. You see something and say, you are going to, to come this way too. <laughs> not a very uplifting thought, but nevertheless a realistic one. It's not a terrible thought, though. It's a yeah. thought of something that binds us all together, ultimately. Yes, indeed. That, that should make, make, bind us all together. If, if ever we are all in the same boat, is in the world that we are all going, going, to, going to go down. <laughs> we're all going to go down. And yeah. apparently we're all also completely ruled by the stomach. 
yes, 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 yes. That's another chapter of the book. Uh, another chapter of the, of the book. Uh, you know, before that, be, uh, although maybe I should be talking more about my book, The Body Fantastic, but what you just said brought to my mind another thing that I read recently. There is a, uh, you, 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 you gave me freedom to expound, so I will do of that. Of course. <laughs> Uh, there is a, an Italian writer, a contemporary. I think he he may have died recently. I'm not sure, but it's within my own lifetime. His name is Dino Buzzati, and he wrote a short a short story called the the Seven Stories, Sette Piani in in Italian. And uh, he this is, is a man who goes to check into a hospital. He's not really very sick, but he wants to have a yearly checkup or whatever. You know, he, he has a mild cold, perhaps. No? And this is a fantastic, speaking of fantasy, this is a fantastic hospital. It has seven stories. And the patients are admitted to the story according to the gravity of their disease, to the seriousness of their condition. So if you are well, you go all the way to the top. If you are very sick, you go to the third, second, and those who reach the first floor, well, they are really at, at the, you know, the, at the brink of death. They are going to die any any time now. No, they are the severest ones. And so he goes to the seventh floor because he thinks he's nothing. No, and there is a series of circumstances, all of them completely, uh, I would say, serendipitous. In other words, they are uh, truly uh, fortuitous. No, that that make him go down. For example. Uh, he's on the seventh floor, and some people tell him, you know, we have a family in Italy, at least in that hospital. Uh, the mother can be can stay with the children if the children are sick. And he said, we don't have a room where we can accommodate the mother and her children. So would you be so kind as uh, sitting your room? Uh, we, 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 we can transfer you to the sixth floor so that, so that the, the mother can accommodate here with their children. He said, yes, of course, by, by all means, I have no, no problem. So he goes down to the sixth floor. Okay. On the sixth floor, there are other conditions like, uh, I don't remember, I don't remember, I cannot tell you in order, but there is a, a, a strike by the nurses or whatever, and they are short of nurses. And the only way they can do is to accommodate the patients that are on the, on the sixth floor into the fifth floor. So he goes down to the fifth floor. And he gets a little skin rash and he needs to be treat, treated with, I don't know, ultraviolet light, whatever. And there's no ultraviolet light in this floor. You have to go to the next lower floor. And he goes like that from there. And every time he goes into a lower floor, he sees patients who are in really bad shape, much worse than he who, who thinks that he has nothing. No? Yeah. And he can always tell him, you know, I don't really belong in this floor. I'm, I'm actually in the seventh floor. It's only because it's special circumstances that they brought me down to, but pretty soon they, and the doctors, the same, the, the doctors are always, you know, doctors are always trying to say encouraging things to the patients. You, you, you want him to have a positive attitude towards his disease. So he said, yes, 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 you, oh, no problem. You will be transferred back to, to the floor where you belong. But for the time being, you stay here. And so he goes down and down and down until oh, one day, uh, you know, the, the nurses say it's come already with an order signed by the director of the hospital and all that he has to be traveled to down to the last floor, to the first floor. 
and the and the, the the story by Buzzati ends that way by saying that the curtains of the of that of that room close down and the light goes out. I suppose all the patients who are in the other floors are looking at that and knowing what's going to happen. The man is going to die. And when you reflect a little bit about this strange story by Buzzati, you think, well, that's life. Because it doesn't matter what you do. You can eat correctly. You can stop smoking. You can exercise. But still, as years go down, you will come down, down. If, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if your physical condition is appropriate, you will see other people much worse than you at your age, much worse than you. No? But nevertheless, we are all in this. We are all hospitalized in the in Buzzati's strange hospital of seven stories. And we are all being transferred. I wrote that essay in, uh, I mean, with reference to, to this story uh, in, a, in an online, uh, in an online uh, magazine for the medical humanities called Hecton International, Hecton, H-E-K-T-O-E-N, Hecton International. And I wrote it with the name, we are all hospitalized. No, so th that's one thing that uh, that uh, you know comes from considering our condition, our humanity, our uh, finitude, and our the, the hum human uh, nature has some great splendorous virtues and strengths, but it has also some weaknesses, and uh, the most obvious is the fact that that we are. Uh, that is, is our finitude, not that we are all going to end. Or that there, there, there's no avoid, not avoiding that. Some people would rather not, would, ra would rather not think or would rather not talk about it. But since I am in the business of talking, talk, talking about these things, I couldn't avoid it. You know? <laughs> anyway, uh, that that is uh, not in the book, uh, but in the book I, I, I consider uh, the various uh, systems and organs of the body. The first chapter, as you as you have pointed out, is the is the uterus, and it has numerous other ideas that we can we would have to exhaust the whole time talking about that one organ here. Then there are other there are other uh, chapters. One is on the stomach, another one is on the skin, another you know is the is the is a rapid survey of some of the some of the main organ systems of the body. One of the um, more unusual chapters that you put in there that you know, also ties into the notion of things that bind us all together was the idea of the aquatic nature of humans. The idea that there could potentially be us all coming from the water originally oh. and our connection to it. Mm -hmm. And that was a particularly interesting and unexpected chapter for me yes yes come across you you talked about the story of cola pesque yes there yes. and you also had mentioned in it um relating to cola pesque the idea of diagnosing these you know, characters from folklore with what could potentially have been the medical problem to give birth to the story uh, yes, yeah, that, that, you're right. You're right in the sense that this book is a little bit, a little bit uh, out of, of character, not entirely, because it doesn't deal so 
so we'll focus on one of the organ systems of the body, but nevertheless, it, there are references, of course, to breathing and the lungs. Oh, of course, it is, it is the it is the fact that um, that uh, that uh, uh, the, the old philosophical idea uh, started by Anaximander and Thales of Thales, Thales of Miletus, who thought that uh, uh, the entire universe originated from water, that water was the primary element from which everything else came. Uh, stated like this sounds a little bizarre, but when one examines the idea in detail, uh, it, it does make sense. But on the other hand, the, 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 the focus of the book is not on the, on the philosophical idea, but more on the relationship of the body with, uh, with water. And, and the idea that, that uh, folklore and legends has many, um, many personages uh, that, that, that inhabit uh, the water, the tritons, the nereids, uh, all the folklores of the world uh, refer to uh, human or semi-human beings, part human and part fish, uh, or amphibian personages that live partly in the water. And then I go into the examination of some of these legends. Uh, one of them is in Spain. Uh, it's in a little town called Lierganes, a little village, which if you will excuse, if you will excuse a senior moment, I right now don't remember in which province of Spain it is, maybe it's in Asturias, I can't remember. Anyway, there was a, in this little village of Lierganes, there was a, a young man who was very fond of swimming, was an excellent swimmer, and once he went with some friends, he got into a river and never came back. And then many years later, some people in the other side of Spain, on the Mediterranean side, on the coast of Cadix, they, they brought somebody from the water, from the sea, that apparently was the same person that had disappeared before. And of course, a legend was quickly constructed. No? Uh, very easy with these kind of things to construct legends which they say that this man from Lierganis was actually an amphibian who could live in the water and could live on earth. And, and, and there was some serious documentation about the, about the fact that people had known him, very reputable uh, persons had affidavits. I, I think the, the bishop of the province of something had, uh, gave uh, his uh, testimony that he had known the family and so on. And they identified that that person that was brought out of the waters of the of the Mediterranean as the same person that had disappeared on, on the Atlantic side, apparently in a little river that went to the Atlantic. No, uh, this is uh, only one of the legends that I I examine. You know the various uh, uh, testimonies and the document uh, documents that um, narrate the life of of the amphibian man of Lierganis, who is a, a notable person in that little village. He even has a statue that is reproduced in the book. The, uh, but a then, gorgeous statue too. Yeah, but then the, 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 the most noted uh, uh, fable or legend of this kind is not the one in Spain, it's the one in Sicily uh, by a young boy, I mean, it's a young boy called Nicolas, Nicolas, uh, and short by uh, shortly referred to as Cola, no, not Nicola, but Cola, Cola, 
and he became he became like a fish no? uh, so uh, the fish in, in Italian pesce so he became Nicola Pesce and he is a I mean a folkloric uh, personage in 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 the whole of it, Italy but particularly in in Sicily uh, where uh, the legend says that that uh, that he gave an explanation as to why there are so many earthquakes on the island of, of Sicily that he was by order of the king you know he was swimming uh, way under under water and so what what is thousands of miles underneath uh, underneath uh, Sicily and he saw that there were some columns that sustained the island but these columns are in bad shape one of them is partly broken and one of them was so completely broken that he has to stay there to 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 hold the the the, the block so that the, so that the the island will not crumble entirely you know? uh, but now and then he he takes a break i guess and that's when they get an earthquake the 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 story is very poetically and very beautifully narrated uh, in Italian as well as in, in the English translations that exist uh, by various uh, uh, extraordinary Italian writers. I, the one that I remember because it was narrated for children in a very charming way, in a very uh, you know quaint way, is by uh, a writer by the name of DiCapria. Uh, his first name escapes me now. He's also contemporary. Uh, DiCaprio, I, I remember DiCaprio because of Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but his first name was not Leonardo. I, I can't at this time. Any DiCaprio is a contemporary Italian writing, very excellent writer. Uh, his most famous book is called Ferito da Morte, uh, um, uh, wounded to death. Mm. Uh, but that's a novel. But he narrates the legend of Colapesce, written specifically for his grandchildren. You know. Uh, and uh, but in addition to DiCapria, uh, we have uh, oh, uh, already eximious Italian writers like uh, uh, Croce, Benedetto, philosopher Benedetto Croce, who, and another one who was a journalist and a writer, uh, this is Leonardo Sciascia, Sciascia uh, they, they wrote it in a, in, a, in a short story called uh, Un Fuoco nel Mare. Uh, fire in the sea. So anyway, the the personage of Colapesce, uh, already a, a pillar of the folklore of Sicily, generally known all across Italy and even beyond Italy. The writers from other countries have referred to 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 uh, to Colapesce, but he, this is only one of the fables, legends, folkloric tales that I narrate in my book, uh, The Boy Fantastic. You told it really beautifully. It's a story that has absolutely stuck with me. And it's just, it's fascinating to me how many of the things that you mentioned throughout your book are things that resonate very strongly today. You know, there were things that you had brought up um, that just made me look at things a little bit differently. Yes. Um, one of the most poignant things after being stuck in a pandemic for several years and unable to get a haircut <laughs> was our complicated relationship with hair yeah. where 
hair is something that um, you point out very nicely. It's both part of the body, but also a part from the body. Yes. Yes, we, we never thought of, never think of that usually because uh, the hair is uh, in a way something discardable. I mean, you can live yeah. without hair. Um, so what I did in, the, in that chapter is first uh, examine some of the old uh, legends. And, and as, as usual, I go into a little bit of the biology or biomedical aspects of the part that I am discussing. And in the case of, of hair, uh, in, in ancient times, people thought that it was a refuse. In fact, the, the word that they used was excrement. It doesn't refer to feces like from the intestine, but excrement means something that is superfluous and that can be discarded. They thought that a lot of combustions, chemical combustions or whatever are taking place in the body. And as a result of those combustions, a little soot or charred material is left. And this little material in some way is accumulated you know, by, by the hair follicles and then pushed gradually, pushed out, you know, in a, in extending the parallel with intestinal excrement. It is something that is pushed out the one it is, it is refused, it's no longer helpful to the body. Uh, and it, it was thought to be like that. It was the, the, it was the, the refuse is excreted through the pores of the skin, no? completely uh, useless. No? Uh, the, then I go to more, more recent uh, theories about the genesis of, of the hair. And we, since we have little time to the social implications of, of hair. And as you, as you well said, uh, it's part of us, it's part of the body. And so it partakes of an element of our individuality. We know that because, you know, it used to be common, no longer, it used to be common for lovers to give a little lock of hair to the lover or to keep as a, as a memento in, 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 uh, in precious cases, you know, but the photograph of the beloved and a lock of his or her hair there. So it was very much an integral part of, of the person or the material person uh, there. Long after, after he disappeared, he or she disappeared and is dust, the, the, the hair still remains and the relatives or the, the people who cherish that person still venerate and even revere that little piece of this person that, that, that uh, you know, that is there. Great personages, uh, have all kinds of legends about their hair. But uh, the more poignant part that, that you referred to, and it was equally poignant to me, was to see what happened to uh, the many people who died in the concentration camps during the Nazi regime in Germany and other places. Uh, you know, after they were born and destroyed in the uh, crematory furnaces and so on, uh, their, their hair remained because the officers of the Third Reich said that there could be some usefulness for that. They could they could do ropes or they could have other other you know other, the, you know the German chemists were never short of ideas. They had other other things that they could use the that they could use the hair, and and so a lot of the hair remained after the 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 Third Reich fell down. 
and the, the, the concentration camps were, uh, the people were there liberated, they still had entire bales of hair of the victims that, that were still there, of the victims and of the people who were alive because they were all always, uh, their, their, their hair was shaved to use the hair. And they, then they tried to put all these large bales of hair in, uh, in uh, New York City in the uh, Museum uh, of the Holocaust, in the Memorial to the Holocaust. And when they were trying to make that uh, decision, because they have all this, they, what, many years have passed and it's difficult to, to preserve the hair like that. Sometimes it's infested by insects or, or, or you know, oils. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a problem to keep all that hair, no matter how well packed it is, you cannot maintain it there indefinitely. No? And when, when they were trying to exhibit it, uh, there, there, were, there were strong objections on the part of members of the board of the, of the, of the museum who had uh, relatives who had died in the concentration camps. I said, I don't want uh, no, the hair of my grandmother no, to be shown there because in a way they felt that it was part of their grandmother. Not, not in a way, it was indeed part of their grandmother, the part that had survived. Eventually it too will, will disappear. It too will become dust like the, like the rest of our bodies. But for the time being, it's still there and it ought to be treated with the, with the respect that, that the rest of the, of the body merits. It's part of, of our body. So. That entire portion of the book is incredibly moving, and it raises just some really interesting questions. You know, as far as we like to think that we've gone from the ideas that were held in ancient times, there's still some folkloric beliefs that we hold about these things. You know, hair is still part of the person. It's still what survived. Right? That just really resonates. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book. I really hope that many more people will get to enjoy it and will get to start some really interesting conversations about what the book brings up for them because it certainly brought up a lot for me. Thank, thank you very much. It was a, it was a pleasure to, to have talked to you. Thanks to Hilary for reviewing the title, which you can find on the Folklore Podcast website, and to Professor Gonzalez Cruci for discussing his work. The Body Fantastic is published by MIT Press and is itself a fantastic collection of material. The Folklore Podcast and the Book Club are the official podcasts of the Folklore Library and Archive, a volunteer-led organisation dedicated to collecting and preserving folklore in all forms and making it freely available for the future. You can learn more at www.folklorelibrary.com. If you can help us to keep our work going, please consider either joining the Folklore Podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where you can find extra content, or alternatively, you can make a one-off donation at folklorelibrary.com slash fundraising. And if you can't help financially, then please do engage with us on social media and share our work. Thanks for listening. See you next time.